We'll be looking at uh, John. With this one? Am I on? Okay. We'll be looking at John chapter 19, the first 11 verses. This is another passage that um, absolutely uh, has fascinated me, increasingly fascinated me over a number of years. Our Advent series has been considering the question that grows from a statement that Peter makes makes in one of his epistles. He says, love one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. And that has prompted us to ask, what kind of love can cover the multiplying multitude of sins that we see in our world today, what we have called the spirit of Herod. We used the episode of Herod as um, Herod's slaughter of the Bethlehem innocents as Matthew's snapshot of how bad things really are in this world that occasioned the birth of Jesus. It's a horrendous episode and it's one that causes us to squirm And it's one that, given the way we have sentimentalized Christmas, doesn't fit within the Christmas story. And yet, it is part and parcel of the Christmas story because it is the lostness of the world that occasions the birth of Jesus Christ. And that is the multiplying multitude of sins that love covers, and then we've spent the last several weeks considering the kind of love that covers such sin. Today, we've considered the vulnerability of love, we've considered um, the purposefulness and the persistence of love in, in Jesus' um, exercise of love toward Judas, and today we'll consider what it might mean when that love encounters Pilate. I'm going to back up into chapter 18 and start reading with verse 38 and read then through 1911. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And the chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. (coughs) Excuse me. 
When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Brothers and sisters, the word of God to us on this Christmas Eve Sunday. I know it may sound strange, but my prayer is that by the end you will understand why it is appropriate to read such a passage on Christmas Eve. So, Father, we do pray that you would um, meet with us during this hour, especially as we come to this, your word, uh, that you have um, given to us and you have preserved for us. Grant us ears to hear it well, eyes to see it well. Give me these lips, skill to speak it well, and protect us all from error, that we may know you and we may know the power of your love that covers a multitude of sins. For we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. It seems that I am participating in um, the great communal event known as a cold of some sort, so please forgive me. So now at last, the spirit of Herod that we saw in the first week, that raw lust for an exertion of one's own power to subdue and to tame and to control the chaos of one's circumstances and the world at large, in order to establish for oneself one's kingdom, it seems that the spirit of our ages since the days of the garden, which has been in pursuit of Jesus since the day he was born, now at last has him cornered. Right where he wants him. It's the climactic moment of such dramas that play out 10,000 times a day, every day, in relationships and conversations from the kitchen table to the conference table to the negotiating table. Whatever, wherever interests and agendas, values and priorities come into conflict, wherever one or more people trying to outmaneuver, manipulate, or otherwise secure or expand their position, their power, and influence... This is the climactic moment. Two centers of power squaring off against each other. And let's not fool ourselves. What we see unfolding here between Jesus and Pilate and the mobs is at the root, really, of every conflict that we find ourselves in or that we find ourselves observing. Every parent-child conflict it's that the root of all roommate conflicts, I washed the dishes last week, I paid the rent last month. It's at the heart of workplace drama, whether it's over projects or over various assignments and responsibilities or various deadlines. And of course, it's at the heart 
of every chronically unhealthy and sometimes even abusive relationships. Whether at home or in the workplace or in the church or even among whole groups of people from across racial, cultural, economic, educational, linguistic, and gender, gender identity lines. So here we are. Two centers of power facing off against each other, the spirit of Herod now embodied in Pilate and the Roman Empire that Pilate represents on the one hand and the spirit of the triune God's peaceable and powerful love embodied in Jesus on the other hand. So what happens? How does the love that covers a multitude of sins navigate this circumstance? Because our tendency is to claim the love of Jesus and the power of Jesus' love and to implement it with the world's strategies. The love that covers a multitude of sins, we must remember, is not sometimes vulnerable and sometimes powerful. It is vulnerable. It is purposeful. It is persistent. We have to hold all of those things together because in that is the mystery of the power of God's love. The love that covers a multitude of sins is vulnerable. It comes to the vulnerable that takes itself the risk of vulnerability. We saw last week that the love that covers a multitude of sins does so purposefully and persistently. While its practice is, is one way and is not conditioned on any prerequisites or responses to enter into and benefit from the joys of this love, it must be both received and given. It's important that we keep those things in mind. Such love, it seems, is not long for this world stripped of grace in which we find ourselves living. It certainly doesn't seem to have what it takes to stand up against Pilate and the screaming mobs. It does not seem long for the world stripped of grace in which we find ourselves living, a world of swirling chaos over which our only hope for survival seems to exert our wills and our wisdom and our strength and our power and our position in order to get our way and to expand our territory. Such, of course, is the thinking of the spirit of our age. The spirit of Cain, the spirit of Babel, the spirit of Babylon, the spirit of Rome, the spirit of Herod, the spirit of Pilate, to willingly make oneself vulnerable, to willingly risk one's own accomplishments and accumulations in order to serve those we suspect or even know will misunderstand, misconstrue, accuse, betray, and abandon us, seems to be the strategy of a fool. A recipe for disaster. <clears throat> Unless, of course, we remember the power of the triune God's great love on display in these episodes. Then we begin to wonder 
How might the power and the glory of the triune God's great love, which covers a multitude of sin, confront the powers and principalities of our age? We have ample opportunity to see the power, what Matthew calls the mighty acts of the triune God's great love on display as it engages them in, with the multitude expressions of the spirit of the age throughout the Gospels. But in its confrontation with Pilate, we may be best able to see at play the principles that Jesus taught his disciples, namely, that the rulers of the Gentiles may, while the rulers of the Gentiles may lord it over others in order to secure and exercise and expand their power, it will not be so among citizens of the kingdom. When the reign of God comes, when the will of God is being exercised upon the earth as it is in heaven, it will, look, it will not look like what it looks like among the Gentiles. And it is so important for those of us in the South who are proud of our gun licenses to understand this. The power of the kingdom will not be exercised in the same way that the power of the Gentiles is exercised. So, what then does it look like? It looks pretty foolish. How then does the king himself exert the power of his great love over the powers of this world? It seems to exercise its power by apparently taking the lowest and weakest place. And from that vantage point, speaking truth, standing strong, and acting with courage. It's worth noting that we see the same pattern playing out throughout the history of redemption. We see the same pattern playing out in the life of Joseph in Pharaoh's court, David before Saul, Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar, the apostles before their various accusers, and courts throughout Acts. So look with me. The love that covers a multitude of sins speaks truth. Now, it's important to understand that speaking also re involves remaining silent. So knowing when to speak a word, knowing when to not speak a word. It sees truly, it comprehends truly, it speaks truly of self, others, and circumstances. Notice what is happening. G Pilate says, uh, verse 9, Pilate asks, where are you from? And Jesus gives him no answer. That seems to be the way of weakness. If you have an answer, give me the answer. Jesus' way of speaking truth at this moment involves him being silent because he is allowing the crowd's accusations and actions to speak the truth for him. Isn't that always the case? Isn't it often the case? that we find ourselves saying things that are truer than we know, maybe true in a different way than we know, and such is the case of the crowds. 
Back up with me. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, We have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. It's an interesting expression there, the Son of God. It's a fascinating expression that John uses. It's huios theo. It is um, a common expression in the Greek. There's no definite article there. In Latin, which would have been the language of Rome, there are two words here. Deus referred to the Roman gods themselves, whereas divas would have, referred, would have signified the divinity that the emperors derived from the gods. But in Greek, there is no such distinction. And so, if you were to speak of an emperor, you would use divas, but if you were speaking of the Roman gods themselves, you would use deos. But in Greek, there is no such distinction. And so, in Greek, the official title of Caesar Augustus, for example, was the emperor Caesar, son of God, Augustus. You begin to understand why Pilate might get a little bit nervous if he's facing a man who has called himself the Son of God. There was a human being in the first century, one commentator says, there was a human being in the first century who was called divine, Son of God, God, God from God, whose titles were Lord, Redeemer, Liberator, Savior of the world. Can you think of what first century person carried all of those titles? Most Christians probably think that those titles were originally created and uniquely applied to Christ. But before Jesus, before Jesus ever existed, before he was ever born some hundred years or so before, all of those terms belonged to Caesar Augustus. The Christians were taking the identity of the Roman emperor and the divinity attributed to him, and they were giving it to a Jewish peasant. Either that was a peculiar joke or a very low lampoon, this commentator continues, or it was what the Romans called Majestas, what we call high treason. Of course, you understand how the Jews understood that expression. It was blasphemous to say that you are, in fact, the, the embodiment of the one triune, the one God, Yahweh. But in the Greek ear and in the Roman ear, it would have been a political statement. And so you can begin to understand why Pilate, when he heard this statement, was even more afraid. You can understand why Jesus is satisfied to let the crowds proclaim the truth. But more than that, back up to the beginning of the passage. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged 
The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Roman soldiers twisted a crown of thorns. And it is true there's mockery and there's sarcasm involved there in terms of the Jews, the, the Roman soldiers' derision of the Jews. Okay, here's your king, here's your king. We get that, king of the Jews. He is, after all, the king of the Jews. But there's something else going on here also. From the Greek and Roman perspective, the crowning has this secondary meaning that this is the one who is most glorifying the God. Because on the birthday of the God, on the birthday of the Caesar, they would have these contests and then soldiers would place a crown. It became the tradition to, on the birthday of the Theos to, uh, with competition to place a crown awarded to the one suggesting the, the one who has offered the greatest honor to the Theos, to the God. What's going on here is the collision of culture as they intersect at these two points. King of kings, Lord of lords, living God, very God of very God. Jesus doesn't need to speak because the, speak the truth because the truth is already being spoken. And the reason is, he knows the truth. He knows who he is. He knows who the crowd is. He knows who Pilate is. What the crowds intend as mockery was, in fact, the declaration of the truth that Jesus himself knows. The crowds in their mockery have answered Pilate's own question about what is truth, but he has no eyes to see it or ears to hear it. What is truth, he says. Listen to the crowds. They will tell you what is truth. But notice this. Jesus knows who Pilate is better than Pilate knows. Do you not know, Pilate says, that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Oh, I know that and so much more besides. Because you have no authority that was not given to you from above. Now, in Pilate's ears, he would have immediately thought, oh, that's correct. I am the personal appointee of Caesar to govern this troublesome area of the empire. Which is, what it was, which is true. But what Jesus is referring to is the one who sent me has appointed you to this position at this time. Remember, Isaiah in his prophecy said something tremendously confusing. He spoke of Cyrus as the servant of the Lord. As Cyrus would become known as one, of the, as one of the most vicious pagan kings. How in the world can that person be a servant of the Lord? 
Well, because the Lord is Lord of lords and King of kings. And he appoints whom he will to wherever he will to accomplish his purposes. And that is what Jesus knows as he stands before Pilate. Pilate, you think you have power. But it's power that has been entrusted to you for a time. And it's not from Caesar. Caesar himself is an appointee of the king. And Jesus does not let Pilate's assertion go unchallenged. That is not what his silence is about. But he challenges it not on the basis of gaining advantage over Pilate, but because of Pilate's, so, Pilate's own self-awareness is putting him and Jerusalem in grave danger. Because of Pilate's own incomplete awareness of himself and his circumstances, he wavers between competing visions of truth and so puts himself and all Jerusalem in grave danger. And Jesus says, you need to understand who you are. You sit in this position. You have this authority because it has been entrusted to you. And you need to understand that. You need to be aware of that. Because Jesus is the love of the triune God that covers a multitude of sins. He speaks truthfully to Pilate about who Pilate is and about Pilate's circumstances. Because Pilate himself is, in fact, the one that is the captive here. You should also know that not only does the love that covers a multitude of sins speak truth, but it also stands strong. That is to say, there's sort of this internal strength, this internal fortitude that is characterized by this love that, carries, that, that covers a multitude of sins. Notice this, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, most commentators will suggest that that flogging was a sort of a light flogging because Pilate himself was not convinced of Jesus' guilt, but he found himself in this difficult political situation, and so he tries to appease the crowds, so most commentators believe. There is another word for the more uh, thoroughgoing um, scourging that Jesus will in, um, endure later. Notice that. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they thrust it upon his head. So he endures the flogging, he endures the crown of thorns, he endures the mockery, he endures the abandonment, the taunts, the misunderstanding, the intent to destroy. Truly, as Paul tells us, the love of the triune God that comes to us through Jesus Christ endures all things. The love that covers a multitude of sins, rooted as it is in the reality from beyond oneself, in this case in the, in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, remember it's the knowledge of the Father and His plan, creates this internal internal strength and stamina and fortitude that can endure all things. 
Brothers and sisters, do you understand how important that word is for us in our rapidly fragile, fragile, fragilizing culture? It is so difficult for us to endure people looking at us cross-eyed in this culture. Never mind the sort of flogging and mistreatment and abuse and mockery that Jesus endured, and he endured it for no reason, no guilt of his own. The love that covers a multitude of sins is a love that endures all things. And you understand why Jesus is enduring this, right? He is enduring it for the joy set before him, as we referenced last week. The joy of of creating for himself a people. It was his love that caused him to endure all of these things. But it also acts with courage. Or, as the case may be, it courageously chooses not to act. It's important that we understand here. So Jesus, in this case, chooses to not act, but he chooses to let this whole thing play out. He knows how it's going to play out. Because it provides leverage and freedom to resist and withstand abuses of power and position, the love of the triune God actually equips us for battle. The military strategy of the triune God's great love is to plunge itself into the very heart of the enemy in order to defeat them from within. This is where I want to use a Star Wars um, illustration, but I was strictly warned from my kids that I am not allowed to. And so those of you who are old enough to have seen and remember the first episode, remember how they destroyed the Death Star. They plunged right into the middle of it. And that is exactly how the love of the triune God actually leverages itself and exercises its power. The love of the triune God actually grants us courage. It actually grants us freedom to act according to the truth. It is the loving truth of the triune God that gives us the leverage and the vantage point to speak to power truthfully and say, because I love you, I will not. It allows, it gives you the freedom to to, in the case of Jesus here, to bow and let things play out, or it also gives you the freedom and the courage to say, because I love you, I will not let you. You cannot proceed to X, or Y, or Z. We see Paul exerting that facet of God's loving power when, as a Roman citizen, he is arrested and flogged without trial. And Paul 
lets it be known that he is a Roman citizen. In love, he is effectively saying, you know, it's really not good for you or for me that you proceed along this course. You will destroy yourself and you will destroy me. Without the love that comes from beyond, that is in a world stripped of grace, in relationships that lack knowledge of the Father's love, we are left with only an arm-wrestling match between parties. The stronger one wins. The one with the most power gets to define what love is, what right is, what wrong is. Gets to define what it does and what it doesn't do. The love that covers a multitude of sins speaks and acts truthfully. It grants to us an inner fortitude and it frees us to act with courage. The love that covers a multitude of sins, in other words, charts its course according to the character and purpose of the triune God himself. It does not chart its course according to the desires of its own heart, but I don't want to do that. It does not chart its course on the basis of risk analysis or return on investment analysis. It does not chart its course on the basis of poll numbers or the anticipated response of those around. It does not chart its course on the basis of the greatest good for the greatest number. It does not even chart its course on the basis of what is right or on the basis of what I, whatever I think is right. The ethics and morality of the love that covers a multitude of sins is guided by the character and purpose and the plan of the triune God himself, revealed by the mighty acts of his great love throughout human history as recorded in his word. Most gloriously in the life, the birth, the life, the death, the the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. As Luke's account shows us, when timid and frightened people are, are possessed by the glories of that love, they act with great boldness and go with great courage into the battle. Why? Because the battle is not ours. It's not ours to win. It's not ours to lose. The love with which we are equipped to take, equipped, took on flesh, dwelt among us and defeated death itself, securing for us our victory. The battle is his, and the battle is already won. It is won by the power of his love. And this is the love that covers a multitude of sins. And this is what we remember and celebrate in the birth, in the life, in the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. <coughs> so, Father, we um, come to you keenly aware of our own weakness, certainly our own weakness as the world defines it, our lack of power and position and influence. We come marveling at the gift of your love by which you make all things new. The same love by which you created all things, sustain all things, and even now redeem all things. And we pray together with Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 that you would grant us inner courage and strength to know 
the unknowable bounty of this love. That by it we may love one another, by it we may love strangers and even enemies, by it we may love the least, the lost, and the lonely, by it we may even love those who misunderstand, abandon, and betray us. For that is the love that makes all things new. And that is the love by which we've been made alive. And that is the love that we celebrate. The love, your love, our Father's love, through the birth of his son, Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.